You're listening to the PK Experience Podcast, where I tap into the minds of today's impact players so that you can raise your game and become a greater impact player yourself. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the show, and man, I've got a treat for you today. I sit down with the very lovely, the very charming uh, Jan Hargrave. Jan is a body language expert. She's from Louisiana. She brings all of her Louisiana charm to the call. And uh, man, it was a fascinating discussion because she just was rattling off all of these um, cues, all these visual cues that, pe- that you give off, that I give off, that we all give off in our body language that helps you read what somebody's true intent is. And it helps whether you're you know, sitting at the negotiating table in a business setting, uh, whether you're in sales or whether you're dealing with relationships. Does he really like me? Is, does she really like me? Does she not like me? Does he not like me? Um, Jan has been an expert uh, consultant for uh, attorneys in the courtroom so they, they can pick the right jurors. Um, she's also written many, many books on body language uh, in all of these different facets of our lives from business to relationships, et cetera, even uh, body language in for poker players. So she knows her stuff forwards and backwards. Like I said, it's a fascinating call. Um, get something to take notes with because Jan just drops a ton of wisdom on it on this call. I am very excited to share this with you, but real quick before I do, if you could go to iTunes and download this episode and or multiple episodes and leave a review, that would be phenomenal. I would really appreciate that. I'm looking to grow this podcast and get it out to even more listeners, so that would really mean a lot to me. I appreciate it. With that, let's dive into the call. Here I am with body language expert Jan Hargrave. All right, I'm here with the body language expert, Jan Hargrave. How are you, Jan? I am doing good, Peter. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's uh, such a pleasure to speak with you. I, every time I hear you speak, it kind of lights me up because uh, just I don't know if it's the ho- Southern hospitality or what, but uh, you're such a joy to speak with. So, again, thanks for joining oh, today. Thank you so much. And we, we've met a couple of times, so it's good to speak with you over the phone too. Yes, and – yeah, I, I do body language. Sometimes I think I've done it so much that I can even figure out someone's body language while I'm on the phone with them. Even though I oh, can't that'll see be them. interesting. <laughs> right. And sometimes if I talk to them long enough at the end of the conversation <laughs> I can figure out if they're if they were leaning forward, they were leaning back, if their feet were up on the desk. You know, for quite a while I've been doing it, Peter. Have you studied it some? Uh, a, a little bit. I mean I've I've certainly seen your stuff. I've seen other people, um, you know, and just um with all the the political breakdowns and you know right now Michael right. Jackson's been in the news and his accusers and mm-hmm. are they lying are they telling the truth and uh, so I'm fascinated by the entire right. entire thing but yeah I know a little bit but um, I, I don't know that yes, I can tell you if you're sitting up or not <laughs> yeah it's an interesting science and then as you said Michael Jackson we you can even we can talk about even R Kelly that was an interesting subject to watch too I saw and a little his bit body of that. language. Yeah, during his interview and getting so defensive and sometimes talking in the third person, that always interests us. Well, the way that I got started in this, you know, remember I'm from Louisiana, so you do get that Southern hospitality, I hope, when you speak with me. Mm-hmm. But when I was in graduate school in, in college, I was in a psychology class and had a fun professor who would walk around different different days and saying to some of us, he'd say, I know what you're thinking, and I know what you're thinking, and I know what you're thinking, kept doing that to us. And one day he looked at me and he said, Jan, I know what you are thinking. You know, and I thought to myself, well, wow, how can that old fool know what I'm thinking? Because it always wasn't too pretty. So he told us about body language. And he and I said, you mean I can study the way that a person will move his arms or eyes or shoulders or legs? 
and kind of figure that person out. And he said, of course you can. And so I got so interested in the subject that I began doing graduate research in the field of body language, just everything I could get my hands on. I was kind of like you, Peter. I would research it. I would study it. And then I would read it. And so I, I did my dissertation in that field and then developed a class. Originally, what I had done is developed a class for attorneys. Uh, and that was all, you know, years ago, it was only attorneys who were interested in body language. But nowadays, I think it doesn't matter what someone does for a living. You know, they've got to be a little bit interested in how to figure out another person. Yes. So, But when it started, we were helping these attorneys to read people better to pick more favorable juries for them. And so from that class and from the years of its existence within businesses started figuring out we need to bring this information to business because deception gestures in the courtroom will still be deception gestures in the business world or honesty mm -hmm. gestures in the courtroom are still the honesty gestures in the business world. So then from that, I just transitioned to mainly training people in industry on how to tell if someone was lying or how to tell if someone was telling the truth or how to tell if someone was confident or someone was nervous. And it just expanded and never thinking when I researched it though, how valuable and how interested people would be in the subject area. Uh, the whole notion of being able to decipher what somebody's thinking or saying, uh, yeah. nobody wants to be de deceived, you know? And so that, that, that notion right. of being able to know what else somebody else is thinking is very enticing for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, the, and, and the thing is, is, you know, once you know the basics, you know, there's an outline of body language, you know, these are gestures that people do and they lie. These are gestures that people do when they tell the truth. These are gestures that people do when they're confident. And then after a while, you know, you absorb and absorb these gestures. And then when you're in an ordinary conversation, you won't think about it all the time, but you may see someone do a gesture and you remember, oh, I remember from my research or maybe listening to Jan that this means deception. Because mm -hmm. people often ask me, they say, Jan, do you ever not do it? And so I usually say, yeah, I don't think I'm doing it all the time, you know, that I'm reading someone else when they're talking to me. But you know what? I probably am doing it all the time and I don't even realize that I'm doing it. Because mm -hmm. yesterday I was doing, a, I did a TV show here in Houston yesterday. It was a National Napping day and so i did a show on i know it meant because it was a day after daylight savings time yeah. so i did a show on sleep positions and how you sleep with your maid and what does it say about the relationship but after the meeting i was in the waiting room and i was talking to the manager of the tv station and not knowing that i was doing it he was just speaking and while he was speaking i saw one gesture of dishonesty i didn't stop him and say look i think you just lied to me i just kind of just you know of course let it go because I don't always stop people and say, you know, you just said something that I don't think is correct. I just let them go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Isn't that something, Peter? <laughs> oh, it's it's fascinating. Uh, uh -huh. It's, it's mind-like. So what, what does uh, the different sleep positions mean? Well, you know, we have people who face each other. We have people who are back-to-back -to, -back to each other. We have people who sleep in the king position. King position where would, would be where someone would be kind of spread out on the bed and you know, the more spread out you are in the bed, the more it means that you want to be the king of the castle. The three, the three things you need to remember is king, people who feel like kings sleep on their back, wise people sleep on their side, and rich people sleep on their stomach. Is that funny? Uh, now, I mean, people, are, is there, has there been studies to, to show this? I mean, how do I you, don't know. You know? Where the, I guess it's all from anthropology. Could have been with animal studies originally. But 
that's kind of the old saying. And two, it says that the person who's more in charge of the family, the, the ruler of the family sleeps closest to the door of the bedroom because that goes back to the old caveman thinking that you want to protect everyone else's in the house. So then therefore you would sleep closest to the door. Mm-hmm. But one thing we found too, was that when you sleep on your left side, you're more likely to dream of nightmares because that's your left brain kind of getting all the work and the weight. And when you sleep on the right side, on your right side, you're more going to have a fun, fun dream, a creative dream, an imaginative dream. I know it gets, it gets to where it's, it's wild and crazy. And people often say to me, they say, or to my husband, they say, how could you ever be married to that woman? Because right. everything you say, she's fine. I know, poor thing. And I do use it. All. I don't think I'm using it on him, but every now and then he'll say something and I'll say, well, Cecil, I think you just lied to me. He says, Jan, don't use your information on me. But I've taught him so much. He probably knows some of it now, Peter. Right. So if you want to make more more money just lie on your stomach with that is there can you, can you reverse engineer it well, you know you know you you know what that, that would mean that we would be protective of all of your earnings you know you'd be kind of hoovering over everything that you have oh, that's, I that's see. the mentality of why someone would sleep on the stomach but it was just an old ancient adage that they would say that people who feel like they're kings of the castle sleep on their back because they want to man spread and take up more room and People who are wise typically sleep on their side and hmm. people who are rich usually sleep on their stomach, somewhat on their stomach. That's fascinating. Um, so you, talk, you talked about the different gestures, lying gestures, truth gestures, confidence gestures. What are right. those? What, what are like, give us like the brief overview of the, the outline of those. A brief, okay. Uh, and two, you know, when I tell you a gesture that says that someone could be being deceptive, Never think that just one gesture by itself can stand alone. If Mm -hmm. I would be asking you questions to see if, you know, maybe you were involved in some kind of crime, I would re-ask a question many different times in many different ways to see if every time I asked that question, I would still get one of the deception gestures. Mm -hmm. So what we have found from the years of research is this, and it has to do with the brain function. It's a psychological effect, but you know, our right side of our brain is our creative and imaginative side of our head. So we, we laugh and we dance from the right side of the brain. Mm-hmm. Our left brain is, is the history and the science and the math, and it's the analytical side of the brain. So when someone is being deceptive, more so their gestures will be done with their left hand because the left hand is controlled from the right side of the head. Because every, every movement I do on my left side of my body, that's controlled from my, from my right brain. So when I lie, the right brain making up stories, telling up a lie. And so therefore I'll more so use my left hand while I talk about that lie. Hmm. If people are telling the truth more so they will gesture with their right hand because the right hand is controlled from the left side of the brain, which is the analytical and the factual side. One of the first things that we've also found that when people are being deceptive, there are three major motions they do. They'll take the left index finger and they'll tend to touch a part of their face when they're telling you something that's not really true or or that's correct and the first one is taking the left index finger and rubbing up and down on the left side of the nose typically what they do they go up twice on the left side of the nose and then they bend the finger and then they come out twice under that left nostril so mm-hmm. you know you've seen someone say and they'll rub the nose and say yeah you look real real good and all this time they're probably not telling you the truth but the background behind that is we tend to bring a hand towards our nose and mouth because we want to cover what's coming out of our mouth, kind of concealing that information. When you were a child and you said something you were that you shouldn't have said, you took your hands and you kind of pushed the information back in your mouth. You're like, oh, I can't believe I said that. 
The mm-hmm. same thing that when we're lying, that hand tends to come back over the mouth, but now we're more sophisticated and we end up rubbing the nose instead. Mm-hmm. And the other key factor about rubbing the nose, it's a physiological effect, is that every time you tell a lie, you get a tingling sensation in your nose. And because of it, you feel as though you have to rub it every time, no matter what nationality or who you, who you are. It's always going to be that way. And no matter what nationality someone is, the left, the left hand is always going to be controlled from the right side of the head, always. It, so rubbing the nose, I'm sorry. Were, I was going to say, say, because your blood, I think I learned yes. this from you, that yeah, it's something to do with your, your, your blood. It's st- kind of like cause a bubble, kind of like a little bubble effect in the nose, and then right. it's a little twitching, and then you feel like you have to rub it. And also rubbing the nose goes back to the Pinocchio effect. Mm. Because you've seen all these ads where someone they thought maybe was lying and they had a picture of the person and the nose was extended. I think mm-hmm. they had a picture of uh, on Time magazine years and years ago of Richard Nixon. And that if you, you can research and find, but the nose is really extended. Maybe yes. there was even one of Bill Clinton years back too on, on maybe uh, Time magazine. Also taking the left hand and rubbing the eye excessively, the left eye. So taking your left hand, rubbing your left eye excessively, tends to give a message that says, do not see very clearly what I'm saying because I am not being fully truthful with you. And the third one is taking the left hand and touching the left ear. And when someone excessively touches the left ear while they're talking, they're seemingly thinking to themselves, do not hear very clearly what I'm saying because I am not being very truthful with you. And, And the reason that a person touches the eye or the ear Remember, it has to be left hand. It has to be touching the left eye or touching the left ear. People do that and touch these two areas because they're trying to distract you from the information coming out of their mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, they're thinking that when they lie and maybe they touch the eye, you'll be more so looking at them rubbing their eye than really focusing on the words that are coming out of the mouth. And when they touch the ear, too, they're doing it so that you would look there and not looking at the mouth and focusing on the words that come out of the mouth. Fascinating. Does it so, get complicated? Is it complicated? Well, it certainly it can be. I mean, I the more information yeah. you put out there, the more you know one right. self conscious of like, well, what am I doing with my hands and right? And then Peter too. You know, if you think about the the background behind it and the science, you know, because I don't want to tell people, you know, you just touch your nose, it means you're lying. Think about all the reasons why you touch your nose, and and one is that you're nervous about the information coming out of your mouth. You're touching your nose because it's kind of itching because of the cycle, what's going on inside your body and the temperature of your, of your face when you lie and think about why you're, so it's not like people are just throwing out this information and say, when they touch the eye, they're lying. There's some science to that. And there's some reference to why someone would do that. Mm. And there are many Uh, others, you know, it's an easy way to kiss someone in a lie is a pretend yawning. It's okay to do a real yawn, but haven't you ever watched someone do a pretend yawn? Oh, no, I call I my son I, out that on that all the time. <laughs> you did. Well, usually, anytime someone is trying to cover the mouth, they're probably trying to cover information that is about to come out of the mouth. Because mm-hmm. there's no sense that people excessively touch their face when they're talking. People is excessively touch their face when they're speaking because they're nervous about what they're saying to you. So think about newscasters on a TV news, news hour. If you look at them carefully, they're very trained. They never, ever, ever touch their face. The girls would never touch their hair. The guys would never touch their tie or arrange their jacket because they're trained that to get you to believe their story, they just talk with you because all these other things are distractions. They're, you know, they're just 
nervous things that people do when they touch too much. And so it doesn't look like someone is, that, is as confident as they would be if they're just talking and not, you know, fooling with their hair or their clothing. Yes. These, these little fooling things that people do in their clothing, these are called displacement gestures. Displacement gestures. People who always are fixing their jacket or people who are pulling on um, imaginary lint off their clothing or someone just pretending to scratch a forearm. You know, someone's just kind of scratching an arm and you know the arm doesn't itch because they're doing it just every now and then when they're talking. That, that's a displacement gesture and it's a sign of nervousness about the situation. Not that they would be lying, but they're nervous and a little bit uncomfortable and they're doing that to soothe themselves. Well, that's so, but that's a big, that's a big difference. One person being mm-hmm. nervous versus uh, actually trying to be deceptive. Yes. How do you right. read between those? Well, the thing would be that uh, you would re-ask a question. We look for clusters of gestures, predominantly three gestures. So if I was trying to see if you were being deceptive, you know, I would keep asking you questions and questions. And maybe when I want to know some one thing about a crime, I'd want to see if every time I'd ask you about that one certain thing, you would give me one of the deception gestures. Because, I mean, I'm just giving like three or four. There are hundreds of them. There's even in sentence formation, you know, that we can kind of tell if someone's telling us the truth or not. But you would make sure that you would ask different questions and look for clusters of gestures. And because um, not just one gesture can indicate that someone's being deceptive, but I do watch for it. If I'm talking with you and while you're talking with me, you would touch your nose, I would definitely, definitely make note of it in my mind and Mm. maybe use it later to reference something that we were talking about at that time. Mm. So, so don't, don't, don't let go of just, yeah, don't let go of just one gesture. If you see it, just keep it in, keep it in mind that they did that gesture while you were asking them maybe about a sale or maybe about a negotiation or, you know. Make sure that you would notice that. Basically, you're taking an evidence. and Right. That's a good way to say it. That's a very good way to say it. And then when people are being honest, most of the gestures are done with the right hand. And Mm -hmm. usually it's the right hand because the right hand, remember, is controlled from the left side of the head. So if someone has to gesture when they're honest, a lot of times they'll bring their right hand, fingers widely spread, and place it on the chest. You You know, you've seen someone put the hand, the right hand on the chest and say to you, wow, I, you know, I had a great time speaking with you. They're being very honest and they're being very sincere. It's not as though we're doing the pledge because in the Pledge of Allegiance, our fingers are together. In the honesty gesture, the fingers are wide, spread wide apart. So you understand the difference, oh, Peter, right? Um, uh, with the fingers? Yeah, explain the that fingers. to me a little bit more. Okay, so in the Pledge of Allegiance, our fingers are, are together over our heart. Yes. In the Pledge of Allegiance. But in the honesty gesture our fingers are spread out and placed over our heart. You oh, can get gotcha. the difference? Yep. You got you. So, so spread out fingers over the heart is honesty. Fingers tight together over the heart is what we do when we say the Pledge of Allegiance. Gotcha. You got me. You got me. You got me. Yeah. And um, maybe it'd be good, too, to, to let people know some signs of confidence. That'd be great that people would do one big one that's easy to spot and that's easy for someone to use would be that the steepling gesture of the hand. Yes. Whenever there's a steeple gesture and that would be the fingertips put together, not as though they're praying. It has to be a looser formation of fingertips together. It's always going to be a sign of confidence. So if I'm speaking with you and my fingers are every now and then come to a steepling gesture, then it usually is saying that I'm confident with what I'm saying and the thing to remember is this, when people are confident with what they're saying, their steeple gesture is at G. 
chest level. And when people are confident with what they're listening to, their steeple gesture is down in lap level. So if you're talking with me and I'm just sitting there and I'm listening, but yet my, my, maybe my thumbs are together in a steeple or maybe all my fingers are together in a steeple, that means I'm, I'm confident with what you're telling me. Mm-hmm. Do you understand the difference? You kind of get the difference? I do. What happens if somebody's doing the steeple like in front of their mouth? Well, I know I've seen that in a meeting where they'll lean forward and they'll kind of put the steeple in front of their mouth. Yes. Because the higher the steeple is, the more that they would be wanting to say something at that moment, but they're kind of like not knowing when's the right time to say it. Because it's a little bit, it could be combative when they're doing it that high in front of their mouth. Yes. When they're sitting at a table leaning forward. Uh Uh-huh. I'm confident about what I'm thinking about, but uh-huh. it's, it's not my turn to speak. You don't yet. want to say it right then. It. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's yep. what it is. That's what it is. So, so that's an interesting question because the thing too, to get the true analysis and definition of a gesture, because, you know, we'll say, okay, a steeple, they must be confident, but to get the true definition of a gesture, you have to try to quickly recall what types of gestures preceded the one that you're trying to analyze. Mm. So if I'm watching you speak and I notice that you do a steeple, then I must quickly think to myself, what did Peter do before he steepled? And maybe I recall that you gave me several positive gestures before you, you answered my question. Maybe you gave me continuous eye contact. I mean, that's a given in body language. Maybe your body started leaning forward. So that shows that you're interested in body language. And then you did a steeple gesture. So in this series of three, it would let me know that you feel very confident with what I'm saying and that you will probably go along with what I've just proposed. But now watch the opposite of that. Maybe I'm asking you about or talking with you about a subject area and I noticed that you did a steeple. But this time I noticed you gave me two negative gestures part of that steeple Perhaps as we were talking, you kept glancing at your watch and glancing at your watch, and it's just you and I. So that's, that's giving me a message right there that you're ready to quit talking with me. Mm-hmm. And then maybe after you glanced at your watch, you crossed your arms in front of your body, and I could no longer see your hand. So there was a tight arm crossing, mm-hmm. and then you would have done a steeple. So what's happening here is that you have two negative gestures prior to your steeple. They're looking at the watch, the tightly arms crossed without the finger, the hand showing, and then you would have done a steeple. In this instance, they would let me know that you feel very confident in telling me no and that you would not go along with what I've just proposed. Mm-hmm. So the wisest thing for people to understand when they're trying to learn body language, it's as though they're, they're almost learning another language. You uh-huh, know, we speak yeah. English and we speak French, so why not learn to speak this thing called nonverbal communication? And when I teach it, I mainly teach American body language, but I still teach at the University of Houston. And of course, we offer classes in every different cultural body language you can think of. Because if you're negotiating with someone of a different nationality of you, then you have to make sure that you understand what some of their gestures are, because maybe some of our gestures in U.S. are not the same as their gestures in another culture. But predominantly, every, you know, in the United States, people will use American body language to negotiate. Gotcha. Does that yeah, give I, you a mouthful? No, I mean, it, it's, I mean, when people talk about communication being whatever the percentage is, 75% nonverbal, with this type of information, you can clearly see how much information we're actually taking in that's nonverbal. Right. That, 
that makes a huge difference. And I would, obviously, if you're, if you're in a business situation, if you're dealing with, you're negotiating and somebody's giving you negative gestures, um, right. let's talk a little bit about how you can steer that to something that's, uh, you know, if you're, you're, you're picking up that that person's not really on board with what you're saying, how do you, um, can yeah. you get them to be more aligned with what you're saying or how, how can you read that and, and yeah, adjust and- your approach? Well, one thing, I think I'm thinking of two things when you're asking me that question. Let's say that you are negotiating with someone and their arms are tightly crossed in front of their body. To get them to really think like you're, you're thinking and to open up to what you're suggesting, you would almost have to get them to uncross. But it's easy to do it, and you do it by, by different maneuvers. One way to get them to uncross would be to try to place something in their hand, whether it's a document or a cup of coffee, because if I have to receive something from you, I would have to uncross my arms, correct? Mm-hmm. And it, it says in body language that the more open the upper part of a person's body is, the more receptive they are to the information that, that you're talking about. So one way would be to try to change their physiology and try to get them to move somewhat to make them open up to become more receptive to what you are thinking. And another way would be to mirror their body language. But when I, when I coach people, I try to tell people, never mirror the negative body language that you're getting from another. I would never mirror you, you know, if you're tightly crossed legs, tightly, tightly crossed arms, I would try to break you from that crossing first, and then I would start to mirror some of the positive gestures that I noticed that you're doing. So let's say that you started rubbing your chin, and rubbing the chin, you know, slowly rubbing the chin back and forth is an evaluation gesture. So if I noticed that you were doing that, and maybe in a few minutes, I'd want to do it too. But you have to be careful so that the person doesn't know that you're mirroring them. And the key to being careful and doing it discreetly is that you would add a gesture before you would do the mirroring gesture. So if you started rubbing your chin, I wouldn't do that right away. Maybe I would take a ballpoint up and maybe I would start writing a note. And then perhaps I'd sit back and then I'd rub my chin. Mm-hmm. So you always have to add one gesture before you mirror the gesture that the other person is doing. So I, I advise people, only mirror positive gestures that you notice. If they're leaning forward and you want to lean forward, that's good. But um, I would never mirror a tightly crossed arm person because it's going to too much give them favor to keep sitting in that position. Mm-hmm. So try to move them around. Or even if you have to get away from your desk and come around and have the conversation with them, try to make the motion, you know, make them do some kind of motion and you do it also. Uh, one thing that sometimes men do, you know, if you place both your hands behind your head, Peter, Mm-hmm. You know, let's say you're sitting back and you kind of like you're stretching, you place both hands behind your head, that that's a confidence gesture, but it's too strong a gesture to do with only a few people in a room. It's equivalent to someone having his feet up on the desk while you're talking with them. So I would hate to be interviewed by someone who sat in their chair, put their hands behind their head and had their feet up on the desk at the same time. I mean, that's pretty powerful, those two positions, right? Mm-hmm. So. But what I tell people, and mostly guys, if I'm coaching a guy, I say, if someone is doing that to you where their hands are behind their head and you want to get them to stop doing it, it's, a, it's kind of abrupt and it's crude, but I would advise a man to do it right back to another man doing it to him. Women don't do it. You see, and women would not mirror it either. But for a guy, let's say you're in a meeting and a guy keeps sitting like that with you, maybe to get him to quit sitting that way with his hands behind his head you could do it for a few minutes and let him get the feel of how it feels to have someone doing that while they're talking with them. Just a, a bit of a challenge, the headbutt. The, right, the, right. The a bit of a challenge. You know, a, lady, a lady can't do it, but the lady could get a man to quit doing it by handing him a document. Because if I'd hand you a document, you'd have to take, release your hands from behind your head. 
Mm-hmm. So, so you see, it's a confidence gesture, but it's too strong. Look, it's, it's okay in a room of 100 people, but if it's a room of just two people, it's too strong a gesture to do for confidence. That's interesting, that context, because it, it, you're taking mm-hmm. up space, right? Is that the idea? Is I'm, right. It's the chest That puffing. was another thing. What, right. It made me think about it because the size of space you think you need around you can let another one know how powerful you feel that you are. Mm-hmm. And for a minute, a man, it kind of comes easy because a man can sit in a chair in a meeting room. And let's say there are two empty chairs on the side of him. He can place his arms on the two chairs on the side of him and sit like that for hours and no one will think ill of it. But he's giving a message right there. He's saying, I need all this space. Don't come sit that close to me because I need all this space because I'm the one in charge of this meeting room. And sometimes when I coach women, I say, you know, for a woman, we get into meetings and we sit really non-confrontational. We cross our legs and we cross our arms. See, women stay in that little ball. And because we stay in that little ball, we feel that, I mean, other people feel that they can kind of take advantage of the conversation. So I tell ladies, you know, you have to put your shoulders back. You have to gesture a little bit larger than maybe you normally would to give the aura that you're needing a little bit more space while you're leading this certain meeting. You mm-hmm. can also give that aura by spreading your books in front of your desk a little bit further than you would need. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of keeping them all crunched together, just because size is equi- size of space you need around you is equivalent to size of power you feel you have. Mm-hmm. And a good reference would be, if you saw three limousines coming down the freeway and one is larger than the other two, you naturally think the most important person is in the largest of the three. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of relate it that way when you come into a room and, you know, the way that you sit and, you know, and, and two crossed arms in front of the body, you look, I mean, it's, it's kind of like you're, 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 you're belittling yourself because it's think of a high school girl walking down the hallway clutching her textbooks to her chest. I mean, how mm-hmm. insecure can that look? Mm-hmm. So people who stay with their arms crossed and stay kind of tiny, it's kind of, it's almost as if they're crumbling. And when people see that you're crumbling, that's when they feel they can take advantage of you. So as much as you can, you put your little shoulders back and you can kind of talk with people and kind of bring your hands a little bit to you or bring your hands away from you, giving the aura that, well, I need all this space because I'm the one in charge of this meeting. Um, Make sense? It makes a ton of sense. It makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that um, rooted sort of in our caveman, like uh, right. biology of protecting our organs. We want to curl up into a ball and, and like, yeah, I would, yeah, yeah. It's fight or flight kind of uh, syndrome, but you're, you're right. You know, that we come this way because we're frightened at the time. <sighs> and so we're going to cross our arms in front of us, but it's, it's not good that someone does. And you know, what's another thing when we study, male and female gender differences in body language that people can always remember this men do not mind having conversations side by side i can watch two men at an airport for an hour never even look at each other but have a wonderful wonderful conversation so men don't mind having conversations side by side but women like to have a conversation with you and they can that they see your face. So a woman likes to be, you know, in front of you while they're talking. They want to see your eyes. They want to see your your smile. And more so, um, it had always been thought that women were better listeners than men. But women are not better listeners than men. It's just that women give more nonverbals when they are listening. Because when a woman is listening, she will sometimes nod her head and maybe she'll smile back. Men more so stay in what's called a neutral position where their head, you know, doesn't move and they don't give too many nonverbals. So when I coach men, I say sometimes if you're having a meeting with just women in there, you can nod your head every now and then. And then I often coach women and say, 
women, you cannot nod your head all the time because they'll think that you agree with everything they're saying. Mm-hmm. But I mean, so, so sometimes a woman will leave a meeting with a man and someone will say, well, how did the meeting go? And she'll say, I, I don't know. I never got any nonverbals from him. Mm. So, so a man has to kind of be careful to do that. And, and uh, uh, another thing with the, with the nodding is this, when you are in agreement, you normally go twice. You're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, your head kind of goes up and down a little bit just when you're in agreement. But when you're ready for someone else to shut up, you know that you nod your head three times. You're like, uh-huh. <laughs> when you want them to shut like, up. We got you want it. To speak, we got it. You go through. Yeah, we got it. Like, we got it. Like, we're talking, Jan. We got it. We got it. So two <laughs> times means, oh, yeah, I agree. And three times means, okay, you need to be quiet now so that I can talk. Okay, I, you I have, a, I have a theory on this, but I want uh, like your input on it first. What? Why do men look not look at each other? Why do they um, both face forward when they're com- communicating? Because, because I think men are more um, – more, more thinking about the, the outcome, you know, that they want to, they want to achieve and they want to go forward where a woman is more concerned about the relationship that she's creating during yeah. that negotiation. Men yes. want the outcome. They want to see the outcome. And so they don't have a need to feel like they have to, when that's okay, you know, once we understand that about male and female behavior, but some people who don't understand it, they'll think, well, this man never listens to what I'm saying, but he is listening, but he's not thinking in the same reference that the woman is thinking in. She's wanting to create a a relationship. She wants to make sure that you like her so that, you know, later on, if you have another incident to have a negotiation with her, that it's going to be a friendly one. And a man is more so concerned about what's the outcome of this negotiation. Yeah. You made a really good point, which (laughs) is not right or wrong. It's just different. And like there's, you hear so much in our culture today of how one or the other thinks the other one is wrong because, you know, she just doesn't but get it's it. Or not, he get it. It, 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 would, it starts off in infancy because in infancy, you know, girls are taught to, you know, be nice and play with other girls and guys are taught to run faster and win this race. So, so it's the way that we're, we're, we're kind of cultured when we're little children and, you know, girls are treated softer and, and then, than boys are. And men are, guys are like, when the game's over, the game's over, let's start another game. It's who can climb faster, who can run faster. And, and the, girl, the girls are like, well, did she like me? Am I the prettiest one in that party? So girls are more with relationship building and guys are more with achievement. And that's just, it ends up being that way when we're older people too. So people need to understand that about each other. It's not that one is right and one is wrong. It's just in the way that we're socialized as children. Sure. And Do the funny you, thing is, uh, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. Uh, when, when children are three years old, that's when you see most of the biggest differences because at three years old, everything that comes out of a little girl's mouth is a word. At three, is just word, 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 word. But a little fellow at three, 60% of the information that comes out of his mouth is a word. And the other 40%, those are those little sounds like, <clears throat> you know, those little sounds. <laughs> and the funny thing is that those sounds stay with men till they're 90 and 95 years old. Because I was just going to say, I yeah, ask I my husband, <laughs> you still do it. Yes. Because if I ask my husband, I'll say, do you like this dress? He never can just say yes. He'll go, <clears throat> yeah, Jan, it looks good on you. Oh, and they just kind of make, and so it's so funny that, you know, men and women are like that. And then it says on, on an average day that men speak 11,000 words and women speak 25,000 words. Oh, Did I you know that, Peter? Uh, I didn't a know lot the specific of the, numbers, but I believe it. Yeah, and, but a lot of it is the way that we construct our sentences. Men will more so make a declarative statement. A man would say, that's a nice car. Oftentimes, a woman makes a declarative statement and sometimes will put an ad in on that 
a tag along on that statement. So I might say, that's a nice car, isn't it? So because of all these tag endings we put on mm. sentences, sometimes we end up having 25,000 words in a day. Well, so that's the, the cause of the, it. Isn't it part is the is the connection part. Like I want to connect with you on, isn't yeah. that a nice car as opposed to a man just yeah. looking towards yeah. saying, it's a nice Making car. Making sure that we have some parts that we agree on in our conversation. So interesting. Yeah. yeah it's so, been a study. It's been a study. I'm so glad that I researched it when I was in school. And when, when the professor was talking about body language at that time, I was dating someone. And my first question to him was, so when this man tells me he loves me, I can figure out if he, if he's telling the truth or not. And my professor had said yes. So then I thought to myself, shoot, I need to learn this stuff because, you know, I can tell if all my boyfriends the rest of my life are going to be telling me the truth or telling me a lie. It's a so superpower. So that's how I started. Yeah, it's a superpower. I, and so I started researching it and I was having fun. I was using it on everyone who I knew. And then from there, I got more interested and more interested. And that's how, so that's why when I, when I talk with young college students or maybe in graduate school or their last years of college, I say, you know, if you're researching something and you're finding it so, so interesting, you can make it be almost a career for you if you know how to just kind of approach it. And, you know, it's an interesting science. So I, I tell them, get interested in so many things, you know, where you're in college, because something in the end can make a wonderful living for you and a good life for you, too. Uh, yeah, that, I'm so glad you did, because this is all, you know, incredibly mind blowing stuff. So let's dive into the the mating gestures, if you will. And how do you know if somebody, oh, okay. if they say I love you? How do you know if they are telling the truth? Yeah, how do you know if they're telling the truth? <laughs> or how do you tell if they're attracted to you? <laughs> one of the books I wrote, you know, I wrote the five books. So one is Let Me See Your Body Talk, and that's body language job interview and presentation skills. One is Strictly Business Body Language, and that's negotiating. One is judge the jury, and that's courtroom body language. One is called poker face, and it's the body language of poker players. But one of my books is called Freeway of Love, and it's nonverbal courtship gestures, signs that men would maybe do or signs that ladies do that say, wow, I think you're really, really nice looking. And it's kind of, it's kind of comical, but one of the very first gestures that a guy does when he finds someone that he feels is attractive a guy will always adjust his socks or pull up his socks when he is around someone who makes him nervous or that he feels he wants to talk with but is too nervous to approach that person. I remember and you know where you that goes? That. Why is you that? You remember me saying that? Yeah. Because it goes back to the old saying where you might hear have one young man say to another young man, he'll say, you need to see this girl, she'll knock your socks off. And what <laughs> it is, it's, it's a nervousness gesture, Peter, that – Maybe we'll go to the feet and, or maybe tie and, and retie the shoe. Because in days of old, at, at weddings, behind the wedding cars, it was shoes that were originally hung behind wedding cars. And so that's why even for a woman, the, maid, the first gesture that a woman does is that she crosses her leg towards the person she's attracted to, and then she begins to dangle her shoe. So for men and women, the major gestures associated with, with courtship – have to do with feet and you have these you know these old things with foot fetishes or or you have it goes back to cinderella effect and does the shoe fit mm -hmm. so that's where all of that goes back to where the male would maybe pull up the sock or the lady would maybe dangle the shoe is big big courtship gestures well, i'm sure you've what, pulled up your socks at times huh have what, you? what came first the the sayings or the the, the i wonder I, maybe the instinct because 
even when I was researching this, and in, in my book, I have a chapter on the history of shoes and, and the history of how shoes were, you know, came into this romantic thing. But even in some countries years ago, a red shoe was put on the doorstep of a home where there was a single woman in that home who was ready to date. I had read that in, in some countries, a shoe was put in the cement of the steps. I mean, there was there's all kinds of things about shoes that had to do with courtship and lovers and and in the the asian cultures they would bind the feet of women to make the feet smaller because a smaller foot was more attractive to the men mm. and and sometimes the foot was so small and the shoe that they got was so small that that they would later uh put the shoe in a glass uh carriage and that was placed on a a beautiful uh, table in the living room of that family if you oh, go back to reading some asian stories about about the shoes and the culture and how the feet were, were binded with ribbons to keep the foot really small and not growing too much so that the foot would look dainty when she was dancing and so. But that's maybe where some of this all started off. Huh. I remember seeing that as a kid. We went to a museum and saw the shoes and they were tiny. Like I couldn't believe they that were so, they restricted yeah. the growth of the feet. It's, it was That's what it was. Yes. Restricted the growth. I've never really seen one except in pictures, but I wish I would seen one in person. But while, while I'm saying this to you, now it's making you recall why that was done. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting to hear. Um, all right, so yeah. let's keep going. Let's keep going with the uh, with the courtship stuff. So what else? Courtship. Let's... Okay, so for a guy, you know, he'll um, the, the guys preen, p r e e n. You know, they will come into the room and maybe adjust the hair, and it's almost as if they're thinking, "Well, do I look good enough for you?" Adjusting the cuffs of a shirt too. You know, how a guy will pull on the cuffs and pull them out of his jacket for a bit. That mm. is a big courtship gesture. Um, standing with the thumbs tucked inside the belt and the fingers, you know, kind of spread uh, around the zipper area, so to speak, you know, now, that's but those, are things, those are things, things that he's going to do maybe walking into a room, right? What about when, or, or is that something that he'll do once he's engaged in conversation with a female? He could do it once he's engaged in conversation, could do it from uh, maybe across the room. If he's watching or eyeing someone he finds attractive, maybe in conversation with the girl, he could, um, take a glass and maybe holding on to a beer can or glass. And while he's talking with her kind of slightly squeezing on the cup or letting go in the cup and then squeezing again, it is a gesture that says, I'd like to squeeze you baby. So you may <laughs> want to wipe the cans of the people you have conversations with ladies do it too. Of uh, You know, putting the finger around the rim of the glass and rubbing it kind of has a sexual connotation too, mm. or playing with the stem of a wine glass can give you a sexual connotation too. And, um, you know, constantly adjusting the clothing or, and, and, and we tend to spread out more when we feel that someone is looking at us, you know, we tuck the tummy in, it's kind of like a mating stance that we take when we see someone from across the room, we think could be maybe eyeing us. And oftentimes couples do, couples do what's called a sexual peekaboo. If I'm sitting at a table and I'm looking at a menu and I notice you at another table by yourself and you're looking at a menu, well, I'll look down and then I'll look up and then I'll look down again. It's mm -hmm. kind of a sexual eye peekaboo that we do when we find someone quite interesting to us. Mm -hmm. Women, you know, most men think that when a woman touches her hair, she might find someone's attractive, but that's not the first gesture that a lady does. A lady does three things before she touches her hair. The very first thing a lady does, a lady will cross her leg towards the person she finds is most attractive. Mm -hmm. So we cross 
towards people we like and away from people we don't like. Mm-hmm. And then once she sees you and maybe she finds that you're watching her, a woman will then slow, uh, slowly kick the leg. You know, a slow kick is kind of a sexual kick because it's done in a rhythm. It, it can't be a quick kick. Oh, a fast kick is an impatience kick. So it has to be really slow with the rhythm. And then she'll start to dangle the shoe. And mm. then after she's dangled the shoe, that's when she starts to be, to touch the hair. And the more that a girl arranges the hair, the more self-conscious she is about maybe someone watching her and finding her attractive. So yeah. when I teach this, yeah, keep going. Wait, I was going to say? say, I was going to say as a guy, the quick kicking is, is a little, yeah, we get a little defensive around quick kicking women. So yeah, <laughs> your kick's slow. Yeah. it's an impatience gesture. Good, good. So when I train ladies, I say, you know, in a business meeting, you cannot, you cannot touch your hair because if the touching of the hair is a courtship gesture, if you're doing it too much during a business meeting, it's going to, it's going to lower, lower every expectation you've set in all of the seriousness that you've laid down on the table in the meeting. Mm-hmm. So I, I tell ladies, you cannot do that. <clears throat> and you know, and some ladies turn their hair over and then turn it back. You cannot do that in a serious business meeting. It's too much of a playful gesture. And yes, too much of a gesture sense. that says, do I look good enough for you? And then after that, you know, maybe even when a lady crosses her legs and takes her hands and, you know, would clasp her hands together and hold onto her knee, her crossed knee. Can yes. you picture what I'm saying? Yes. Clasping the hands and then hold. Well, that's a gesture that says, you know, uh, it says, I'm going to be prim and proper now. I'll, I'd like to hold on to you, but I'll hold on to myself. So ladies do that oftentimes when they're in the presence of someone who they find attractive or someone who they would want to be attracted to them. I mean, there are so many. I even studied shoes, Peter, that you can look at someone's shoes and it's going to tell you what kind of lover they would be. Oh, you know, like well, a, from a fly. Yeah, you can't I dangle that out there and not deliver. So what? how do you know? Oh, gosh, I don't know. But, you know, I'm trying to think of what I have in the book. But I know the more tied up the shoe is, the more prim and proper and tied up the person is. And okay. I know that um, women who wear shoes with strategically open areas may sometimes wear undergarments with strategically open areas. Now we're talking. That's a good one. <laughs> that's a great one. You get really that sentence one. that I just said? <laughs> I mean, um, isn't that a good one? It does. So I, many if I wear flip-flops, does that mean I wear a thong? No, that would be a good one. <laughs> that would be a good one. No, I think if they wear flip-flops, it's more they're, they're easy, they're casual, a casual lover, you know, not too many complications in their life and in their love life either. Gotcha. Things like that is what it says. Oh, it's, it's a fun part of the book too, of the, the body language of whole romance. reality going on that most people just know the bare minimum on. This is so interesting. Um, yeah. What about, what about when you're dealing with like a lot of the, a lot of the gestures that you're mentioning that are um, under the deception umbrella, if you will, are so because somebody feels self-conscious about do they know that I'm lying or they're trying to yeah. conscious there? What about when you're dealing with yeah. a narcissist or a sociopath? Do they have the same well, kinds of things or no? no? They, they, they're so, they are so believing their own lie that they, they come across pretty credible because yeah. they believe their lie. Cause I was watching the guy in Colorado. I think it was Colorado who said that his wife and two children disappeared around Thanksgiving and, uh, and he didn't know, but come to find out, you know, now he's, they have, they have caught him for this and all the lies that he did. But the moment that he said it, if you look at him carefully, the way that his body language was, 
he was holding, he had his arms crossed in front of his body and he was holding onto his upper arm between the shoulder and, and the and the elbow holding mm-hmm. on there. And he was swinging back and forth and just holding on to himself and uh, saying, I want them back. I just want my family back. I mean, nothing with pleading and nothing with crying in the face, just kind of smug and holding himself together. Right then, you know, when he was talking, I, I just kind of felt an uneasiness and I, I knew that this young man was probably involved in, in the missing children and, and with the wife. Because think what a liar is thinking when they're talking with you. They're trying to think of their lie. Plus, they're trying to gauge your body language to see if you're believing what they are telling you. Mm-hmm. So just think how busy their mind is. They're mm-hmm. trying to think of their lie. And then they're trying to see, well, is this person believing what I'm saying? But when you're listening to someone's story, you can even listen to the formation of the story to see if it's deception or if it's honesty. Because Every story that we've ever told or heard is made up of three basic parts. Every story has an introduction where I might say to you, let me tell you what happened. Every story has a body where I'd give you the facts. And every story has a summary. And the summary is usually how you felt. You might say, oh, I had such a good time. I'm so glad that I did. Go there. So if it's a true story, you get equal time spent to the introduction to the body and the summary. Mm. And when it's true, your facts are not given to you in chronological order. And when it's true in your summary area, you get a number of emotional verbs. Like they might say, I, I, I was so afraid. I was just so afraid to be there. So you could almost feel that they were there. Mm-hmm. When it's a fabricated story, it's a really short introduction. It's a really short closure, but it's a huge body. And the facts are true, too chronologically exact. They might mm-hmm. say at 532, I exited Walmart. At 545, I felt a hit on my head. And also when it's fabricated in the summary area, you will not get emotional verbs. They might say, I had to run far. I had to, I had to run about two miles that, you know, it, they weren't really there. So to, so to catch someone in a lie, you have to listen to the story in its entirety. And mm-hmm. then you have to talk about something else and then come back to them and say, so tell me exactly what happened again. And when they start telling you the story, though, you have to be prepared to ask them a question from something at the end of the story at the very beginning. So, so you can't, when someone's talking to you and you say, and you think to yourself, oh, I think they're lying. Don't stop them right there. Just, just let them go. Let them go. And then listen to the story and then talk about something else and then come back and make them start telling you the story again, because they have it memorized too chronologically exact. So if you get them out of sequence, they'll know that you caught them in their lie. Uh-huh. You see, but, but if someone's story is true, you can ask them something from the ending at the beginning because they, it's true. They were there. So they could tell you anything in whatever order it's presented to them or ask of them. So, uh-huh. so, so that not only do you watch the body language, but you also look for the formation of the story mm-hmm. when someone's telling you something to see if they're being deceptive with you. Well, and you've also talked about the inflection of their voice and the emotional right. tones. Do you, do you consult on that as well, voice? I mean, obviously we talked yes. about the nonverbal, but what about the verbal? Yes. Typically when someone is stressed and strained and lying to you, the vocal cords get really tight and the voice gets extremely high. So when people lie, the voice is high. When people are afraid, the voice gets low. So even on the phone with someone, you could kind of figure out if they're telling you the truth or not by listening to the level of the voice. Because it's hard to see the body language, you know, when they're on the phone. But even in, in teleconferencing now, which is wonderful that you can see someone, you know, in a meeting room and kind of figure out if they're telling you the truth or not by watching the body language, but also listening to the voice. And yes. then one thing we didn't even touch on was, you know, just the handshake in itself. 
mm-hmm. that, you know, for, for listeners and people to know that the best kind of handshake is the vertical handshake, the straight up and down, because it allows each party to have a part in the conversation. When someone comes to shake your hand and their palm is facing downward and they hold onto your hand that way, that's an indicator that they want to control you. So when mm-hmm. their hand is facing downward, they're saying, whatever we, we decide here, I want to have the final say so. Mm-hmm. If a hand would come to you and the palm is facing upward, it means that they're more submissive to you. And they're thinking, whatever you decide, that is perfectly okay with me. But, you know, I, I often advise people, and, and think about it, Peter, when someone comes to shake your hand another time, and let's say that their hand is facing downward, you may want to take it that way, but make sure by the end of the handshake that you get the hands, that they're vertical up and down, because when it's an up and down handshake, a vertical handshake, it means that each party has a 50-50 chance in getting a time to speak. Mm-hmm. And a funny thing about handshakes was that the correct number of pumps in a handshake is three. Hmm. Did you know that? I didn't, but I, I, I know the social awkwardness <laughs> that comes when you're – sometimes people don't yeah. let go and you're like, well, give me my hand. Yeah. There's some really fascinating yes, I, and, and hilarious videos online of, you know, presidential meetings and photo ops where, you yes. know, they're shaking hands. And, of course, they have to pump, you know, a million times just because there's so many cameras. But, but, the, but the, yes. the proverbial arm wrestle that goes back and forth between who's on top right. and, and then there's a way you can, you know, touch the other guy's shoulder and then he's turning. Right. It's, it's a, like a little Call wrestling anchoring. match. It's so funny to see. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and two, often people say to me, what about those who hurt you when they shake your hand? Yes. There is no sense that someone will hurt you, Peter. I think people who tend to want to hurt you and squeeze your hand, I think oftentimes they're lacking in self-esteem and they think that if they seem more powerful mm-hmm. and, and hurtful to you in the handshake that you think that they're more powerful and in, in, in themselves, but yes. there's no sense that someone does that. And then two, every time you have a meeting with someone, you get two opportunities for handshakes an entrance handshake and an exit handshake. So if the first one was not to your liking, then during the meeting, by golly, you know, make sure you say to yourself that by the time I leave this person, I'm going to give them a really good, good handshake. Cause you mm-hmm. never want someone to think that you cannot give a good handshake. And the weak, the weak, the handshake, you know, the weak handshake where they just catch the fingers, that's more used in, if someone has to use it, it's used in a social setting only, not in a business meeting, because it goes back to where, uh, let's say you met me and you would just catch my fingers and you'd kind of bend my hand over and you'd want to kiss the top of my hand. Yes. That's what it comes back to when people just catch your fingers. So when someone does that to me, I'm thinking, are, are they going to kiss me or what, what are they doing with me? Why are they shaking my hand this way? Mm-hmm. But that's usually what it means. And it's sometimes someone lacking in self-esteem, but two, you know, I get some states where men are really, really courteous and maybe their mothers taught them, you know, don't shake a woman's hand real hard. But I think, and you know, they're not doing it to be ugly. They're just doing it because their mother taught them that. Mm -hmm. But I think nowadays any woman in business wants to feel equal to that person. And so a woman also wants, uh, you know, a good handshake, a good firm handshake. Yes, for sure. I mean, sometimes it's it's super awkward when you miss grab somebody if you know right. you're in a social setting and there's multiple people around and you're doing quick handshakes right. whatever, and you you end up catching that, especially a guy on guy type of handshake. Is, uh-huh. How do you recover from something like that? Well, oftentimes I'll say, I don't think we got a good handshake. Let's try this again. Oh, just yeah. Sometimes I'll over. say that if it's if it's worth it, if it's worth it, you know, if it's someone that maybe you you think you know is just 
a cousin of a cousin of a cousin that maybe you'd never see again and it's too much trouble. But if it's someone in a business setting where you know you will negotiate with them or maybe have further meetings with them, I maybe would do it again and just jokingly say, I don't think we got that right. Let's try it again. Yeah, that's a good idea. You know, just in case, because you never want them to think you don't know how to shake hands. Yes. All right. Can mm-hmm. I, so can I put you on the spot a little bit? Yes. Ask me. I have, uh, I have two, two truths and a lie. Okay. I'm share, I'll share them with you and see if you can tell me which one is the lie. Wow. Okay. Can we, do, can we try okay. that? Let's try it. All right. So I'm going to just go through the, the three of them. The first one is I've been conned out of $100,000. The second one is I drove a Formula One race car. And the third one is I had a supermodel as a client. Okay. Take a deep breath and just say them to me again. I got conned out of $100,000. I drove a Formula One race car. I had a supermodel as a client. I think that maybe your lie is C. Uh, What's your lie? It should be a lie, but I did actually have a supermodel as a client. Um, it's the, I drove a Formula One race car. What That's did you cool. drive instead? You drove something, though. Uh, I have driven other, uh, no, like, you know, race cars on a racetrack. It's something I want to do, but yeah. I, it's not something yeah. that I've done. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. look, I didn't catch you, but were you rubbing your nose when you said the third one? <laughs> uh, you know what? I wasn't even thinking about it. I probably was. <laughs> you probably were. But sometimes, you know, I mean, of course, if I could have seen you in person doing it, it would have been much easier, but it, your your voice was about the same each time. See, so I was, you taught me well. I mean, I was, yeah, I was being your very... Voice never, your voice never went higher on A, B, or C, so I didn't know exactly which one i was just kind of best basing it there on what i thought would be the less obvious thing that you would have done but that is so wonderful if you had a supermodel as a client <laughs> it was wonderful <laughs> it, was, it was fun um well and what part of the reason why i was asking about the sociopath stuff is because i did get conned and I, like aside from mm-hmm. the the tragedy of of getting you know conned out of all that money was um, I was just so fascinated that somebody could look me in the eye and be so believable. And one of the things that, that um, really was kind of blew my mind was when I got to the point where I was like, ah, oh, I think she's screwing me over. I called her up yeah. and, and I wrote down all these different notes and then flew down because I had just moved. So I flew back to where I used to live to confront her. And, and I had this whole notebook of all these different things that she told me. And, and my entire intention yeah. was I'm going to catch her in a lie. And I was fascinated at her ability to remember all of the details. I was like, wow, you are either you're telling the truth and this is the craziest, like, you know, story I've ever heard, or you're one of the best liars I've ever met. And it turned out that she was a, you know, con artist and and had a record in other parts of the country. And wow, I know I got caught, I got caught the same, I got caught one time too, but you know, people who believe in themselves so much and believe their lies. I mean, think of Casey Anthony in a in Orlando, the lady mm-hmm. who had the baby missing for 31 days. Yes. We all knew she was Horrible. lying, but she didn't think that we all knew she was lying. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, even when she took the, the police officers into the Orlando, into Disney World, you remember she took our Disneyland, Disney World, I think, and was going to show them her desk. Yes. And she took them, you know, they got through the security and they went down the hall. They got closer and closer and closer. And then when they get to this room, then she turns around and said, you know, I never worked here. You know, she just had bored someone's past. But, I mean, to take police officers there 
And then the two, the thing is that when they lie and they see they're almost caught, well, then, then they, their lie goes into another bigger circle from that lie where they have a little piece of that one that could kind of be true. And then they add, it's kind of like a circular, circular, circular effect that goes on and on. But it's like O.J. Simpson, too. They believe that what they did was needed to be done, so they believe there's a righteousness in what they have done. Ah, oh, jeez. You see? It's, twi- it's pretty twisted. I know. Yeah, but boy, Peter, I'd like to know more about that story. That's uh, uh, interesting. Your story, I'm saying. It's you know, a good but one. I know it's, people. It's a, yeah. at least a two to three drink story. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, well, when I see you, we need to do this two to three drink because that would be an interesting story. And maybe we could have figured out how we could have caught her in the beginning. But but it's all the same way. You know, we, we trust people and we think yes. of the goodness in others and we think surely no one's going to do that to us. But everybody's out, I guess, you know, for themselves in some way, those people who are really deceivers like that. Yeah. And they're going to, you know, be nice and kind. And then you to make that they're nice and come to find out something's wrong with the whole situation. Oh, she, it was incredible. Yeah. Without getting too much into it, she, you know, I took okay. my infant daughter to go see, you know, the the stables yeah. and the horses, and you know, and I did a lot of. This is the other thing is I did a lot of background check. I got I checked references. Yeah. I, I uh, asked mm-hmm. other people in the community. Like I checked her financials. Like I did a lot of homework. Uh, That's and, good uh, that you did that because a lot of us don't do that when you well, just get up in business with people and then find out later. Well, my, there were two, I had two big mistakes. The first one was I did a background search on her, but I only did it statewide. Had I done national, I would have seen the other wow. bounce checks and the other things that she had okay. been doing. Uh, and then the other thing was, is I, I, at the time I was doing a lot of real estate. When you buy and sell houses, of course, you have a, a central public uh, record of title. Whereas in the equestrian yeah. industry, you don't, you just, you have a piece of paper that says, mm-hmm. Hey, I have this, this, this title is my horse, but, uh, yeah. I can just print out a new piece of paper. And, and if I'm dishonest, say oh, yeah. Yeah, that's my horse and here's the paper to prove it. Yeah. But there's no central yeah. centralized document. Yeah. To do it, so. Yeah. Uh, learn mm-hmm. that. One the hard but way. knowing, no, knowing some things about body language now, like you do know, the next time you're in a meeting with someone, I mean, you could, you know, think about, you know, the story formation, because that's always a good thing for people to think about is how they're giving you their stories. Yes. And then also look at their body language while they're talking. But, but still, they will come across as so believable because they believe in what they're saying to you. And they have a goal in mind is to make money off of you or from you or something of that sort. So you, you'll have to, I mean, really watch them for a while. And, uh, and listen to their stories and watch the body language when you're in conversation with them too. The, the one thing that you mentioned in this call that would have been a, a key for me was that she was very, she spent a lot of time on the body, not on the intro, not on the, on the uh, conclusion. Oh, the body of the story, yeah. Chronological, uh-huh. uh, fact-based stuff and, oh, and not inflection yeah. of emotion or whatever until I started yeah. to challenge her. Then she got defensive and yeah. Uh, like overwhelmingly yeah. came back and said I was this, that, or whatever. And and that to me at mm-hmm. the time was like, all right, you're. Yeah. Yeah. We all get caught. We all get caught. So um, it's just that to, to be wiser and uh, sometimes just be more careful with some of the people we get mixed up with. But I think some know, knowing some of the things about body language could help someone so tremendously when they're in, you know, deciding if they're going to take a partner in a business or deciding if they want to sign a contract with someone else to think about it and also bring another person in who can watch the behavior while the conversation is going on, because that's how we do it in the courtroom. You know, if we have a possible jury pool, each juror is numbered and I have a, a seat chart 
And so if the attorney is asking a question of number 32, I can make notes and I can say, well, you know, he was at, you know, he asked her and I can make all these notes that I want in her square. And then later on in the afternoon, when the attorney comes to meet with me and he'll say, well, Jan, what do you think about number 32? Should, do you think she'd be a good, good juror for us? And I'd say, no, she hates you. If you, cause sometimes when he's asking the question, he, he can't be watching her body language, but I can be watching it. So that's what we do as jury consultants is mm -hmm. sit in there and watch the body language of the prospective jurors to see if perhaps we want them on that trial or not. So interesting. Have you ever been a, um, ex, um, what do they call it? An expert witness? No. I, and I've been asked many, many times, but I, I, I don't want to because they would get into my life. You know, yeah. they'd say, well, in high school, maybe you made a C in English. So why <laughs> should we think that you're a good speaker now? Some, whatever it would be. No, right. I just never want to put myself in that situation. But oftentimes when a crime does occur, they will send me the, the defendant's video testimony or they'll send me anything, a questioning session, and then I can watch it, watch it, watch it here, you know, on my screen. And I can make notes that he's being deceptive here. He's being deceptive here. He's being deceptive here. And I can send that to the attorney. That's how we do it. And then the attorney decides how much further he wants to ask him about certain questions. Mm. So that's mainly how we do it. Or I've trained some witnesses too before who I feel I would never train someone who I thought was guilty, but if I feel someone is innocent in their own trial and maybe their attorney hires me to help them to come across as more believable while they're testifying, that's one thing that we can also help with. I've helped people do that. Yeah, that reminds and me of another one. Yeah, oh, go ahead. Yeah, tell me. No, well, you I tell was me. Just I was just going to say, uh, like with Margaret Thatcher, I remember seeing videos of her where her voice, you know, she would intentionally come in and speak lower. Um, but there were times where she was either off camera or whatever, and you could hear her natural voice. And it was, you know, like an octave higher that just didn't, didn't mm -hmm. resonate as well. Didn't, it wasn't as grounded, yeah. you know, less. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Uh, one, one of the cases I, I was thinking of was, uh, a man had come into this auto body shop and he was looking for someone else because the person, a man who worked at the body shop and I guess the man had done him wrong. And so he was wanting to just to hurt this, this man. So a young guy is sitting at the desk as the receptionist guy in the body shop. And there's a camera behind his head, the one at the desk. And mm -hmm. you can see the guy come into the, come into the office and he's, he's threatening and he's saying, where is such and such? Cause when I get him, you know, it's not going to be a pretty sight. And then, then he's looking at this young guy at the desk. And he said, and he said, you probably lied to me. I should come back and maybe destroy you. And so then, then the, the guy who had burst in later on, you know, went back through the door and was going to leave, but then turns around and the guy at the desk thinks that maybe this guy's going to hurt him. He pulls out a gun and he kills this guy, this guy oh. who had entered. So there's a video camera on the top of this young man at the desk, but it doesn't have sound. So the attorney representing the young man had hired a lip reader to see if they could see if the, they thought that this guy was threatening enough that justified this young man shooting this mm -hmm. guy. But the lip reader couldn't see the, their lips moving that much. So then that's when they hired me to look at the body language of the intruder to see if I thought that his body language was threatening. So I, I just don't want to come out and say, yes, his body language is threatening. What I had to do to justify it in my mind I made a list of all the threatening body language gestures that I knew, and I made a list of all the non-threatening body language gestures that I knew. And then I went through and I looked at the video, and I would check if I saw any of the threatening ones. I checked those, but I did see some non-threatening ones too. 
and I checked those. Mm-hmm. And then I went to meet with the attorneys and I told them that this, these are my findings. There are some gestures that sure, certainly, yes, are threatening, but there are certainly some that are non-threatening because I don't want them to base their whole case on what I would have seen from this video that doesn't have sound and I just would have seen the body language. But it was a good thought. And so they took whatever information I had and they went to trial with that. Wow, that's interesting. I mean, well, and but, but also it, the, the context matters too because threatening to what? You know, maybe not necessarily to the, yeah. the, the guy that ended up shooting right. him, but could have been to... Yeah, he shouldn't have, yeah, he shouldn't have probably done that, you know. Yeah, but oh, but it, it's funny in the way, and they had seen me on television speaking, <laughs> and then that's when they thought, well, let, let's call Jan and see what she thinks about this case. Yeah. It's a good way to use what, you know, what I know. And the funny thing, Peter, is this. I was just trying to figure out that college boyfriend to see if he liked me, and then it has come to murder trials. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> and here Amazing. we are, are doing the president's body language. Amazing. Well, bef- before we uh, before we wrap this up, I'm curious to know. We started the call with you saying maybe you could tell me a little bit about uh, whether or not I'm sitting forward or sitting back or whatever. What right what now? I- you're sitting forward. You have a headset on. No, I don't. But I have a mic that I'm leaning towards. You have a mic in front of you. Oh yeah, you're sitting forward. Your hands are. But let me see how your feet are. Your feet might have been. Your feet are probably pushed underneath the, your chair a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you're sitting forward. Yeah. I see you. I see you right there. <laughs> so for those, if it wasn't clear earlier, I just want to let people know. Normally I do a video call and just uh, publish the audio for the podcast, but this one we're just doing a phone call. So Jan can't see me at all uh, just to make sure that that was clear. Well, Jan, this is uh, as always fascinating, interesting. I do still oh. remember when we chatted for a little bit after one of your talks, you analyzed uh-huh. my handwriting. That's a whole nother thing. Yeah. That we didn't even it's touch on. It's a whole on. other thing. Yeah. You, you yeah, let me know I that thought I, about that too. We can do that sometimes. But Peter, I think that even in explaining it the way that you and I explained the session just now, that someone just hearing it could, I hope, get the the message. Oh, 100%. And then by you taping it this way, someone can listen to it and maybe slow it down and listen to it again and again. And then, you know, because I know it gets complicated when I talk about the right brain, the left brain, the right hand, the left hand. But if you slow it down and you play it and you listen to it in detail and make notes, they would get the message of everything I think that we spoke about today. Definitely. I, th- I thought about that, you know, before we actually spoke, to be honest, like, you know, it'd been yeah. great to do a video call with a body language expert because we could actually visually, mm-hmm. but I think you're right. If we had done that, we there, at least for me, I probably would have not explained it as clearly because I could see it, but somebody oh, listening yeah. couldn't have. Yeah. So I'm actually glad that we right. did it this way instead. Well, I'm happy to. I'm happy to. <laughs> Very good. Well, Jan, thank you so much for your time. This is, uh, as always, very, very fascinating and interesting conversation. I look forward to, uh, to following it up and, and having another sure. conversation too about it. I look, let's do it again, Peter. I do too. Have a good day. It was wonderful talking with you, and I can't wait to see you again either. Fantastic. Well, actually, real quick, if somebody's interested um, to find out know, uh, more about you or, or, or you know, get in touch with you, where could they go to do that? Sure. Well, my website is just my name. It's Jan Hargrave, H-A-R-G-R-A-V-E.com. And um, my email address is Jan at Jan Hargrave.com. Perfect. Again, okay. thank you, Jan. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Peter. Have a All good right. day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.